0: And pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host, Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So Islanders, I hope you're well. Last week we had the case of the milkshake murderer Nancy Kissel who drugged and then bludgeoned to death her husband Robert Kissel in their Hong Kong apartment. Now they had three kids and they went to live with their uncle and auntie. That was Andrew and Hayley Kissel. The thing is, just two and a half years later, Andrew would be found bound and stabbed to death in the basement of his home. Now, tonight I'll be referencing the Hartford Current, Current, the Boston Globe, the New York Times, Meow.com, and the Cornell Law School. Okay, as I mentioned last episode, Robert Kissel had done very well in the banking industry and had a rapid rise up through the companies that he worked for. He generated a lot of wealth. He was very grounded and people liked him. Now, on the other hand, his older brother, Andrew born August 23, 1959, was almost the opposite. He chose a life of trying to make fast money any way he could. And if that way was his illegal or screwed over friends and family, that didn't matter. But that wasn't always the case at first. He seemed to do the right thing when working for Shearson, Shearson Lehman Brothers and W&M Properties Real Estate Businesses in New York. Now, it looks like he started to cut corners and go rogue after starting his own real estate business, the Hanrock Group, in 1994. Now, Hanrock was formed from the initials of Hayley, Andrew, Nancy, and Robert, who'd all chipped in to get things started. Now, Hayley was his wife, and of course, there was Nancy and Robert. Andrew married a former ski champion who went on to become a financial analyst, Hayley Wolfe. Now she often appeared on national networks giving financial advice and they would end up having two kids. And Andrew, when he went out on his own, he would use prospectuses which listed that he had a bachelor's degree from Boston University and an MBA from New York University. And it looks like these were both bullshit. But Andrew dressed the part and spent plenty of money so he looked very successful and was able to suck investors in in one instance he was able to convince investors to join a co-op apartment housing scheme i'm running out of breath now for those that may not know what these are they are a housing arrangement where you don't actually own the property instead you own shares of a corporation which in turn owns all of the property property in the cooperative now the number of shares you own correspond with the size of your apartment So if you own a large three-bedroom, you'll have many more shares than the owner of the little studio down the hall. So in this case, at the apartment block 274th Street, East Manhattan, Andrew had one unit in the complex, but then increased that to two and then three. Now they were adjoining and two were on one floor and another was either downstairs from those two or above it. I'm not sure. Anyway, anyway. He ended up having them all connected to make one multi-level apartment. He ended up becoming treasurer for the co-op and had all correspondence diverted to his own address. All financial contracts would be dealt with on his own and invoices paid with just his signature. Now he started invoicing the co-op from companies he'd set up himself for work that would never be done or when work was done, it was extremely overpriced. Now, all contracts for work, like I said, were in his possession. And he ended up transferring about $4 million into his own accounts before someone noticed. Now, Andrew would, in, in the end, agree to pay this money back to avoid a lot of legal action, not all legal action. But where would he get $4 million from? especially at the rate that he spent money. Well, (laughs) I'll tell you, what he would do is get investors to go into buying an apartment complex. Again, they would all be in a co-op arrangement and he would pay each shareholder a monthly or quarterly dividend. But he would end up forging the owner's signatures, sell their share in the co-op and keep the money for himself. Now, as long as those investors still got their regular dividend and statements... They were none the wiser. But ripping off his investors, it just wasn't enough for Andrew Kissel. His other right was to buy large freestanding houses in well-to-do areas, develop them and flip them. Now what he would do? he'd hold on to a mor- hold on a- hold on. He would hold a mortgage on the property with one bank and then go to another bank with the mortgage papers, Saying that it had been paid off in full, so he'd get it forged so it looked like it was clear of any debt. He would then use that as collateral for another mortgage on another place on another bank, rinse and repeat. Now, part of his M.O. Was that he would often change lawyers and banks so that no one would have a sense of what he was really doing. I mean, he was in the news a lot. He was in social pages, you know, champagne women around him and all that, not always his wife, but he was this sort of guy. So when banks knew about him and they wanted his business. Anyway, those investors, like I said before, would pay would pay dividend, he would pay dividends to them so that they weren't suspicious. Plus, as we know, especially in the US and Australia, banks are willing to lend anyone that look successful, whatever amount they need in the fear of missing out or FOMO, missing out to another bank. I mean, if you're a day late paying your credit card, they're going to hammer you. But when it comes to millions, hey, just walk in there. It's better than walking in with a gun and stealing money, which you might get $10,000, $10, a little bit of change. You're going go to go to jail for 10 years. These guys, these white-collar criminals, are above that. Anyway, where were we up to? (laughs) Anyway, these banks' close scrutiny on Andrew's dealing was just never undertaken. Andrew was into everything. He bought horses. He bought an olive oil manufacturing plant and the arts where he commissioned a play. He had 30-odd cars and he had a yacht. But Mr. Andrew Kissel, he wanted more. Andrew looked on the outside to be extremely successful, a bit of a playboy, and this started to grind a little bit on his wife, Hayley. You remember how they took in Robert and Nancy's three kids? Well, with two of her, her own, Hayley was often left taking care of five kids while Andrew was out dining at fine restaurants and having a great time. And like I said, he was also rooting plenty of other women. She knew this was going on and the marriage started to break down, especially when he ripped off her father in one of his investment scams. There you go, father in law. He even forged documents to transfer the Vermont house in Haley's name into his own so that he could borrow against it. <laughs> nice bloke, this Andrew. Now, I won't go into the issue about the custody of Robert and Nancy's kids other than they were very wealthy and they were worth around 18 million all up and whoever had custody had a certain amount of control over that money. Now when Andrew ripped off not only Haley's father but also the estate of Robert Kissel this rang alarm bells within the Kissel family and there were court cases in regards to custody now, Haley and Andrew ended up with custody of these kids right up until the end of this saga. Now, where everything really started to come undone for Andrew was when he approached a bank for a multi-million dollar loan. Now, in order to make this a little bit less confusing, I'm just going to read an extract from an article by Alison Lee Alison Lee C- Cowan of the New York Times. Hey, My grandmother's name was Cowan, maybe long-lost relative. Hi, Alison, if you're listening. Anyway, I'm just going to read this little bit out because you explained it so well. According to Miss Walkley, who at the time was the counsel for Fidelity National's office in Trumbull, Connecticut, she was involved in a June 3 closing in which the Fairfield County Bank in Ridgefield, Connecticut was giving Kissel a $4.5 million construction loan secured by a property he owned on Burning Tree Road in Greenwich a title searcher working for Fidelity National spotted what appeared to be a prior mortgage of 1 million dollars on that property from Independence Community Bank in Brooklyn now asked about it just before the closing kissel insisted that the Brooklyn bank had made an error and meant the record to record the mortgage on his other property in Greenwich Now, Miss Walkley said she and her team took that to mean his residence on Derry Road in Greenwich. When they later learned that he only rents that house and doesn't own it, she said that they were concerned, but were not sure that Kissel had lied. Here we are, we're talking about millions of dollars. They're they're concerned, but they're not sure that he lied. Jesus. Anyway, at least these people had a bit closer look. I'll go on. Also, because Kissel had already drawn down funds from the Ridgefield Bank's construction loan by the time the confusion began, Ms. Walkley said she thought it best to record the new mortgage while they sorted it out. Now, the following Monday, Ms. Walkley was relieved when Mr. Kissel, as promised, furnished a notarized document that appeared to be from the Brooklyn Bank releasing its $1 million claim on the Burning Tree Road property. Now, had her company not been enlisted two weeks later to ensure another Kissel deal, Miss Walkley said she's not sure she would have made the connections that she ended up that she would make. In that second deal, Mr. Kissel wanted to borrow $6.42 million from Countrywide Commercial Real Estate Finance Company in California. Now, he wanted that against the apartment complex in Woodbury, so that's the one he was borrowing for. This time, one of the Fidelity National title Searches found a prior mortgage on the property for $5.4 million from Astoria Federal Savings in New York. Holding his ground, Mr. Kissel forwarded a release that showed Astoria Federal relinquished its claim on the property back in March. So, with Mr Kissel expected to be out of the country, a power of attorney arrived on Miss Walkley's desk on June the 17th, allowing the closing to proceed without him. Now, one look at the loops in his signature on the A, so that the loop he did for his A, made her nauseated, she said, because it resembled the signature of a bank official that appeared on the Astoria federal release. Now, her apprehension grew, she said, when she realised that at the end of the day, I was going to be writing to Mr. Kissel's account almost $6 million. Now, a colleague at the Fidelity National encouraged Miss Walkley to call story a Federal to ease her mind. Now, to her shock, the bank told her that Kissel was current on his loan and had an outstanding balance of $5.3 million. The next thing she knew, she was calling her client, the California Bank, to explain why the closing was not going to happen. Six weeks later, federal agents were knocking on the door of Mr. Kissel's Vermont vacation home. Okay, so because Mr. Walkley had been involved in two, um, because Miss Walkley had been involved in two of Andrew's deals, she was able to pick up something that was wrong and call in the authorities. She just happened to see these two contracts and the the mortgage papers from the other bank, and just thought, geez, that looks the same, the way that A is in the signature. (laughs) That's pretty clue. That's pretty good. She's got a good memory. Anyway, when Hayley found out about all this, she really, really wasn't impressed. She confided in a friend that not only did she want a divorce, but she wanted Andrew dead. She even told Andrew's sister, Jane, that God... I hate your brother. I could actually see myself pumbling him to death and just enjoying the sensation. Now, Jane Andrew Jane, which was Andrew and Robert's sister, had been a ski student of Haley's and that's how Andrew met her. And Jane and Hayley were very close friends, so Hayley would often vent her frustrations to Jane. So, there you go. Hayley filed for divorce in February 2006, stating that Andrew was a belligerent alcoholic and drug user. Now, with all of Andrew's bank accounts frozen, he couldn't even pay the rent on their Greenwich mansion. The landlord initiated legal proceedings for unpaid rent and they ended up getting evicted. Now, there was an agreement between Hayley and Jane to hand over Robert and Nancy's kids to her. But Hayley would renege on this agreement as now she was financially up shit creek without a paddle and with nowhere really to live. I mean, the trust money coming in for looking after the kids would give her a place to live. Now, she did come from a wealthy family, so no, she was probably okay. She wasn't going to be homeless, but she was probably homeless in that she probably only had a small ski chalet to stay in, not a great big mansion that she was used to. And again, she could work in her high-profile job, although I guess the scandal with her husband probably fucked that up a bit. So she held on to the, she held on to the kids and the money that went with them. By this time, Haley had to leave the Greenwich Mansion, and so the movers came and moved most of the stuff to her new place, and that was on the 1st of April 2006, leaving just enough furniture for Andrew to sleep comfortably. Now, Andrew stayed at the Greenwich Place on the night of April the 2nd alone. The high-flying real estate guru is now friendless, wifeless and all alone with a tracking bracelet on his ankle. Now, being a bit of an asshole, once the money was gone, so were all his friends. Except his faithful chauffeur, 49-year-old Carlos Trujillo. Now, Carlos had worked for Andrew for quite some time. He had immigrated from Colombia and had established himself with several other family members in America. He was more of a gopher than a straight-out chauffeur, bringing Andrew whatever he asked for, like Uber Eats, but this guy would bring him cocaine as well. He knew more about Andrew's dealings and affairs than his wife. On the afternoon of the 2nd, Carlos delivered food to Andrew at the Greenwich house at around 6 p.m. This would be the last known person to see Andrew alive. The next morning at around 6 a.m., movers turned up to remove the last of the Kissels' possessions from the house. Now, in the basement, they would find Andrew Kissel, bound by his hands and feet with cable ties. He was blindfolded and gagged, lying in a pool of blood. He'd been stabbed five times, and one wound was in the jugular vein. Police were called and a crime scene established. There was no sign of forced entry, so this indicated that Andrew knew his killers. The problem for police was that Andrew had fucked over so many people, including family and friends, that there was no clear suspect. He'd signed a plea deal over his dodgy dealings the previous year, and only five days after he was killed, he was to plead guilty to bank and mail fraud in court. When Haley heard about the death, she called Carlos to pick up the family dog and bring it to her place. That's cold, cold, cold. Was it someone who didn't want him to get to court, who may have been implemented in Andrew's fraudulent activity? Was it a pissed off investor who wanted him dead? I mean, Haley, who'd confided in a friend that she wanted Andrew dead, which she was high on the list, but she would eventually be cleared. There was even a theory that Andrew, not wanting to face a lengthy prison sentence and poverty, hired someone to kill him so his family would be able to claim on his life insurance. Now, even though he was in divorce proceedings with Haley, I think he thought this would be the best outcome for at least the kids. Now, Carlos, being the last person to see Andrew alive, was also investigated and police would end up making him a prime suspect. You see, Carlos had been helping Andrew hide money and assets in the months before his death. It was reported that he laundered and helped hide up to $375,000 or more of assets for Andrew in the months up to his death. Now, but why would Carlos kill him? Well, apparently, a large proportion, if not all of that money, wasn't returned to Andrew and Carlos kept it. Now, there's more people involved here. There was also Jorge Trujillo, a property manager for Andrew and his legal wife, Stella Tafur, who was a bookkeeper for Andrew. Now, I say legal wife because apparently she was shacked up with big bro Carlos, (laughs) Jorge's Bigger brother Carlos was sleeping with his legal wife. I mean, I don't know how this works, but that was the way it was working anyway Jorge took off he took off back to Columbia just before Andrew's death, allegedly with two hundred thousand dollars from Andrew's safe, which Haley knew was in was in there, and she was not impressed when she was moving out and found that it was all gone anyway. What kept investigators looking at Carlos was the fact that he changed his story of where he was after he last saw Andrews several times. The investigation into Carlos would take years and eventually include a couple of his rellos, 24-year-old Lenny Trujillo and Jer Trujillo. Now, a search of Carlos's place would uncover a credit card belonging to an Aminta Trejo. When they went to track down this Aminta woman... They eventually found her in Waterbury, which is 77 miles or 125 kilometres northeast of New York City. When detectives spoke to her, she thought they were there to talk about her family's involvement with drug cartels. When detectives told her it was about a homicide, she replied, "Oh, they killed the rich Jew guy." So she'd basically put her relos right in the shit. Now investigators finally had a break in the case. She told them how Leonard or Lenny had been hired by Carlos to kill Andrew Kissel. So they brought him in. It wouldn't be long before Lenny would spill the beans. He would tell investigators that he was approached by Carlos to kill Andrew Kissel for $11,000 and a computer. However, he had no intentions of actually killing him and that he did help plan the murder, but he only took the money and he didn't go through with it. Okay, so... Now, not only do they have Aminta saying Carlos was involved, but now they have one of the co conspirators to the slaying. Further investigations would reveal that the few months before Andrew was killed, there were 50-odd phone and text messages between Carlos and Lenny, whereas before that time, there were none, as they were never very close in the family. Also, Lenny had used his credit card to buy cable ties and gloves before the murder, The cable ties that Lenny described were only known about by whoever killed Andrew. Their use hadn't been released to the media. There were also travel documents and room receipts showing Lenny was in the area at the time of the murder. Now, as I mentioned before, there were no signs of forced entry into Andrew's house and the crime scene was reasonably clean. Andrew was bound, gagged and his t-shirt pulled over his head when he was found... And this sort of indicates that the killer was close to the victim. I mean, maybe Andrew pleaded with Carlos and Lenny not to kill him and they couldn't bear looking at him and hearing his screams to be let go. There was no reason to gag him because in this basement on a mansion on a large plot of land, no one would be able to hear your scream from another property or probably even outside. So the fact that he was bound, he was gagged and t-shirt put over his head it does indicate that it was somebody who was close to him now lenny ended up doing a deal with prosecutors in exchange for giving evidence against carlos now lenny would plead guilty to manslaughter and conspiracy to commit murder now he would get 20 years for his involvement carlos he was charged with murder and attempted murder The prosecution put forward the motive that Carlos had laundered all this money for Andrew and was worried he might get found out if Andrew went to trial. So he enlisted his cousin to kill him. The defense argued that Lenny's story was just that, a story that was made up after he was pressured by investigators. But why would he accept a 20-year deal if it was untrue? So I find that this is probably true. you think that If he was saying, I wasn't there, I didn't do it, but I did help plan it, I'll do a deal with you to give evidence against Carlos. You think five years, six years, or a very small sentence, but he was quite happy to do a 20-year stretch. So I am putting on it that it was probably true that he planned it and that Carlos was involved. Now, Carlos's trial, he would be acquitted of murder, and there was a hung jury on the attempted murder charge. However, the prosecution wanted a retrial. In the end, Carlos would strike an Alford plea with the prosecutors and he ended up getting six years. Now, an Alford plea is a guilty plea in a criminal court whereby the defendant in a criminal case, they don't admit to the criminal act, they assert their innocence. So in entering an Alford plea, the defendant admits that the evidence presented by the prosecution would be likely to persuade a judge or jury to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and the name Alford plea is taken from North Carolina versus Alford, four hundred U.S. twenty-five. If you want to look it up yourself, so basically he's saying, I'm not guilty, but it looks like the evidence you've got is going to put me away. Rather than do a big stretch, let's do a deal now. We won't have any case, but I'm still saying I'm innocent. Give me a few years and that's fine. So he ended up getting six years. Well, what a tangled web of bullshit this case was. I mean, Robert's murder last week was crazy, but this one is pretty much just as much messed up as that one. Andrew, trying to keep up his high-flying lifestyle, starts ripping people off and committing fraud. He didn't care if it was family or friends. He did anything to get his money. At first, he was able to cover his tracks by making sure anyone involved would get their regular dividends dividends or banks would get payments. He kept a distance from a lot of the transactions by using these power of attorney documents so others could sign off on his deals. Now, the banks were just as much to blame for it as, as they were just desperate to get Andrew's business and didn't really do enough due diligence. So, as with any of these Rob Peter to pay Paul Ponzi type schemes, they will eventually come crashing down. For Andrew Kissel it did. With all his friends and family gone, all his cars and boats gone, with the prospect of going to jail for a long time, Andrew Kissel, once a socialite, womaniser, real estate guru and wealthy man, he died alone in the basement of a rented house he'd been evicted from. What a fall from grace. So what do you think, Islanders? Did Andrew get Carlos to kill him in order for his life insurance to be paid out to his family? And by the way, it wasn't, because the insurance company argued that Andrew's cocaine habit hadn't been declared. Now, did his wife Haley order a hit? Was it one of the many that he'd ripped off over the years? Well, my thoughts, well, I do think Carlos... He kept all the money and other assets, assets that Andrew had entrusted upon him to liquidate and hide from the FBI on their investigation. He knew that there would come a time when Andrew wanted it back so it was easier to bump him off and risk giving it back and then doing time for doing the actual laundering of all this money. Now, Jorge, he seemed to get off all right. He already looks like he already ran off with the 200000 out of the safe. So Carlos, after all the years of faithful service, thought, well, whatever's left, I'm going to keep my car. I was driving this asshole around for years. And my my cousin or other brother, Jorge, has gone off with 200 grand. Now, Lenny, he was probably involved. He may have chickened out. He might have been the one to maybe organise a gun. And when he backed out of the deal, Carlos just he only had a knife to kill Andrew. Suicide for hire? Maybe. But if Andrew did want Carlos to kill him so his wife could claim the insurance, I reckon he probably would have wanted to be shot in the head rather than get knifed and bleed out all over the floor. But you've got to think, Andrew Kissel was a narcissist. Would he really want to die? There you go. There's a few questions for you islanders. and It's one of these Weird cases. We've got all the business in the milkshakes and crap in Hong Kong. We've got Robert dead. We've got Andrew dead. What? It's just tragedy in this family, but it's all money. And what it gets down to is greed. So greed is good? (laughs) I don't know. Okay, well, that's it for this week and the end of another episode. For our Patreon, thanks to all my past and present and new patrons, your financial support does make a difference as True Crime Island is commercial-free for all, so no annoying ads for undies, food delivery, whatever that sort of ads that are going on at the moment. My content is available for everyone, no matter if you donate or not. And thanks to Nicole this week. Cheers, Nicole. If you want to help out the island, you can go to patreon.com forward slash island. If you don't like to do the monthly one, you can also send beer money, and I like this beer money, to PayPal. PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Don't forget in these (laughs) these weird times we live in, support yourself before you support the island, because I know times are tough. I have merch at Threadless and Redbubble now. I've updated my website, truecrimeisland.com. There is a contact and merch link, and that'll get you all the links for Threadless and Redbubble. There are also links on my website to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing, also by sharing it with your friends and family, which is really important if you can get more people on the island. Please feel free to check out my YouTube channel and subscribe please comment subscribe and to get notifications hit the bell i've also added a link for this on my website now if you want to contact me the best way is cambo at truecrimeisland.com all the other ways are quite difficult for me to go back over and search if required especially if you've got a case suggestion okay i think that's about it i've been your host cambo you've been listening to true crime island and as i always say hang on We've got a promo this week. Sorry, I nearly forgot it. We've got a promo at the end of the show. I spoke about it last week. It's becau- it's called "Behind Behind Bars, Cocked Tails, and Wasted Nights." So have a listen to that. So, as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night, Umphalanga. I used to be afraid of spiders, snakes, and sharks. Now, I'm terrified of a group of girls approaching the bar. What can I get you? Drunk? Folks, I'm Greg, and I host a podcast called Behind Bars, Cocktails, and Wasted Nights. And if you're listening to Cambo, I know you get it, and I want you in my virtual bar. And let me give you a tip. That coaster I just put down wasn't for your phone. Cheers.